One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Stephen Kosher disappeared on Sunday, December 13th, 2009. When a person disappears without a trace, often the most critical information is hidden in their actions and words from the days before they vanished. Stephen Kosher's last known whereabouts may hold the clues to what happened to him. A church-going young man goes inexplicably missing, and his car is found abandoned near Las Vegas. His cell phone records, his email and voicemail records, and everything stopped. His grieving family cannot make sense of it. It was horrible, a punch in the stomach. A blurry video might have answers. And I thought, is that him? Is that him? And some wonder if his case is linked to another high-profile missing persons case. You don't know what happens behind closed doors. Laborious searches lead to frightening findings. Some of the other searchers found bones. Only one thing is clear. Right from the get-go, we knew that this is not normal. This is not common. It's winter 2009 in St. George, Utah. An economic recession is in full swing. 30-year-old journalist Stephen Kosher is struggling. Like thousands of others, he's been laid off and can't find full-time work. We said, well, at least get a temporary job and, until you can you know, get yourself on your feet. And every time where he went, there was 150 applicants. Earlier in the year, Stephen had given up a newspaper job in Salt Lake City, Utah, near his parents' home. So he moved five hours south. They wished he hadn't relocated so far away. We knew he was struggling, and, and like they say, that's why we wanted him to come home. Stephen's absence is hard for the Koshers, who have always been a close-knit family. The second of five children, Stephen is outgoing and lively. 
Steven is a very curious kid. He always wanted to be where the action was. He told me one time, it doesn't matter what we're doing, we could be painting rocks, and as long as we're doing something together, it's fun. He was always looking out for the, the tender reason that you should do something. He liked sports, but he was artistic. He liked to draw, and he liked to sing, and he liked to play his guitar. From his youngest days, Stephen was a clean-cut, dutiful son. He wasn't just a Boy Scout. He was an Eagle Scout. Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, courteous, kind. His Eagle Scout project was in the communications field. He created a flyer to promote a charitable organization. After graduating with a degree in communications from the University of Utah, it seemed Stephen would follow in the footsteps of his father, a publicist and newspaper editor. He had a lot of connections through his dad, and so he started out um, writing articles and advertisements, filling ads for the newspapers. But one day in 2009, Stephen left his job with the Salt Lake Tribune and told his parents he was moving south. He just said, I'm tired of the long winters. We grew up in Texas where the winters weren't as long, and they kind of started wearing on him. And he said, St. George would be a great place to live. He did have an enthusiasm, a kind of a wanderlust about life. He would just try anything. He had no fear. The town he chose is warm and scenic, but it's been hard hit by the economic downturn. The big industry is construction. And when that kind of went down with the recession, boy, it just tore the guts out of the economy. In April 2009, Stephen finds a room for rent in a house which he shares with another tenant but the two have little in common. And he said his roommate was kind of crazy. He tries to make friends with his roommate, but their values don't mesh. For one thing, Stephen is a devout Mormon who doesn't even drink coffee. Stephen would invite him to church activities when they would play basketball, and he would come occasionally, but he was never interested in going to church. St. George has a large Mormon population, also known as the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or LDS. Stephen quickly becomes involved in a local congregation of young people called a ward in the LDS. For single adults in the church, your ward is kind of your life. That's where you base everything. That's where you meet people that, you know, have similar values. They're going the same direction in their lives. His church life is fulfilling. But there's a big hole in Stephen's personal life. Unlike his siblings, most of whom are married with children, Stephen doesn't even have a steady relationship. There was a girl that he dated for a long time, but he needed to break it off because her interest in the church wasn't the same. One or two became very close to an engagement, but he didn't feel it was the right one. I know that finding a wife was tops on his list. That's a big thing in our church, and to have a family, we believe that to progress to our full potential, you need a family. Stephen is far from realizing this crucial life goal. And as the year goes on, he's running out of money too. His cousin KC worries that Stephen feels like a failure compared to his successful siblings and cousins. We have so many cousins and all of them are just so amazing. And they all accomplish great things. And it's not like we ever looked down on him, we never did. 
but it's still hard not to compare yourself. Stephen's family is concerned about his struggles and offers financial help, but Stephen is resistant. His grandmother had given him a check. But Stephen doesn't cash it. His parents tried to give him money for rent and he never used it. So it, it really shows me that he was struggling with accepting handouts. By the fall of 2009, there's finally some good news. Stephen has landed a part-time job, doing marketing and handing out flyers for a window washing company. But it's not enough to pay the bills. One day, Stephen's father, Rolf, gets a phone call from his son's landlord. The landlord told us he was about two and a half months behind in his rent. And so I called him one evening and said, we're glad to help you. And he got a little offended and did not want to continue the conversation. Rolf is upset that his son has hung up on him. But he gets a reassuring message the next day, December 10th. And Stephen sent me a text back, says, I'm okay, Dad. Just want to do it my, on my own. Then Stephen calls his mom, sounding upbeat and eager to make plans for the holidays. We talked about when he was going to come home for Christmas. He was saying, well, I have to work on this day and this day, so I think I can get home by the 23rd. Content that they will see Stephen for Christmas, the koshers relax. They have no idea these are the last conversations they will have with their son before he disappears. Just one week later, disaster strikes. I came home and my wife was sitting in the dark. She was just uh, huddled over the phone and she played back this, this uh, voice message from the, the police in Henderson, Nevada, saying his car had been found abandoned since December 13th. Henderson, Nevada is two hours from St. George, but just 20 minutes from Las Vegas. What was Stephen doing in the Vegas area of all places? His parents have no idea. It's been a week since Rolf and Deanne Kosher in the Salt Lake City area have heard from their son, Stephen, who lives in St. George, Utah. Then on Thursday, December 17th, they get an ominous call from police in Nevada. He said, this is the Henderson Parking Enforcement. We have this car here. We're sorry that it's here. Is there anything that you can do about it? We think it's your son Stephen's car. And I could almost not breathe. The car, they learn, has been parked in a cul-de-sac since Sunday, December 13th. It'd been abandoned there for four days. And that's a long time to, for that car to have been abandoned. Henderson is two hours from Stephen's home in St. George, Utah, but 20 minutes from Las Vegas. The koshers can't imagine what Stephen, a devout Mormon, might have been doing in Sin City. It was horrible, a punch in the stomach, um, frantic, and then I thought, what do I know? I don't know. The koshers can't reach Stephen on his cell, and although they share a family plan, their cellular provider can't locate the phone. They said it's not charged up. Stephen's phone was dead. What could have happened to Stephen? Deanne suspects it's something worse than a jaunt to Las Vegas. She's afraid that loneliness and financial troubles have overwhelmed him. I thought life got really too tough for him. He's walked out into the desert. 
and was horrified by that, but that's kind of where I went in my head first. Stephen's anguished parents called the police in St. George, who assigned Detective Adam Olmsted to the case. We didn't have a reason as to why his car would be where it's at. That was one thing that was very suspicious from the get-go. We filed a missing persons report that evening. Later that evening, we got in the car with my two youngest sons, and we drove through the night. In St. George, Rolf lets himself into his son's rented house with a copy of the key. The roommate is gone, moved out a month before. Stephen's room is neat and looks as if he plans to return. His laptop was there. His cell phone charger was still in the wall, so it didn't look like he was planning to be gone for a long time. And most of his stuff was there. On the other hand, they can't find his passport. A month before he disappeared, he asked me for the passport for his job applications. And, and then when we looked, when went through his effects, it wasn't there. That was huge because um, it makes this premeditated. But if Stephen were planning to disappear, would he leave his phone charger and laptop behind? In the beginning, no one knew what happened to him, and there were so little facts. Rolf grabs Stephen's spare car key, and with mounting anxiety, he and two of his other sons head for Henderson, Nevada. Two hours later, they find Stephen's abandoned car. Where they find it only deepens the mystery. It was in a cul-de-sac in this very nice retirement community. Residents of the community must be older than 55, and the cul-de-sac is quite far from a main road. This is not a place where you would actually just go to drop a car. It's just not, you know, where you run out of gas or something like that. It's a very affluent area, and it became very clear this was not an ordinary situation. Rolf tries his key in the ignition. The car started, and it had a half a tank of gas, so it didn't run out of gas. It wasn't not functioning. Rolf wonders if the car had been stolen and abandoned here, or if Stephen had driven here expecting to meet someone. He calls the Henderson police, and officers respond quickly. They spent two hours looking at the scene and filing reports, and they immediately suspected all the usual alcohol or drugs or whatever. Because of Henderson's proximity to Vegas, local police have a lot of practice tracking missing persons. Las Vegas is one place people head for when they want to get lost, and about 2,500 people go missing there every year. So it's, it's not unusual but they don't go missing in that neighborhood. Rolf finds it hard to believe that the usual Vegas attractions, gambling and partying, have played a role in his son's disappearance. We checked his car too, and there were audio recordings of scriptures and things like that. Then he sees a possible clue to why Stephen might have come here. Advertising flyers for the window washing company he currently works for are tossed on the dashboard. We thought maybe he had distributed the cards uh, he was trying to establish a business there. They also see miscellaneous receipts for gas and food, a coat, pillows, and blankets in the car. As if Stephen might have traveled some distance and slept in the car. But on the back seat, there's something that puzzles them. Among the things we found in the car was a bag from a Kmart. It contains decorated cookies and a baby bib. Could these be Christmas gifts Stephen bought for one of his brothers and his family? He bought little ornaments for the kids and a bib for the baby and just little things like that. He was frugal about it, but it was cute, you know? He put some thought into it. And so that shows to us that 
He was coming home for Christmas. He had no intention of skipping out. Still, in the trunk, there's a disturbing reminder of the tough times Stephen was going through. The heartbreaking thing for us in the trunk, there were dozens and dozens of applications for jobs that he'd made. There were his copies, you know, and that kind of tore my heartstrings to see that because <clears throat> he'd worked so hard <clears throat> at finding a job. The police do no forensics on the car because there's no evidence that the car was hijacked or that any harm has come to Stephen. The koshers accept their reasoning, even though they doubt their conclusion. The police believe that he would be found a couple days. You know, he went off with a friend to Vegas or just wanted to get away for a while, forgot his charger at home and was out doing something normal. All sorts of theories. None of these theories reassures the koshers, who are racked with fear that something sinister has happened to their son. When their 30-year-old son Stephen goes missing in a town near Las Vegas, the Kosher family is distraught and bewildered. But with no evidence of a crime, officials can't offer much help. For the first nearly a week, we got no cooperation from the media or the, or the police, really. Oddly, the car has been found in a cul-de-sac in an upscale retirement neighborhood. So that's where Rolf Kosher and his sons begin their search. It turns out, on that very first day, we knocked on the very first house near the cul-de-sac, and they said they had a surveillance camera set up. The homeowner's cameras might have captured images of Stephen's car, or even of Stephen. But special equipment will be required to locate and download the footage. We eventually got some private detectives that uh, my brother-in-law had hired. They went over there and they worked through the system. It could take days for the footage to be analyzed. Meanwhile, Rolf and his sons comb the neighborhood and then look for any place they can think of where someone who is lost might turn up. He had to be either in a shelter, in a hospital, in a jail, or somewhere. We thought, there's no way someone can just totally disappear like this. At home, Stephen's mother, Deanne, is also searching, starting with Stephen's cell phone history. I just started trying to find anything, any clue, any person, anything that would give us a, why was he there? I, I was sure that someone was going to say, well, we had an activity, we went down to Vegas to do something. She's beginning to realize how little she knows about her son's life. I didn't know who his friends were. Deanne learns that the last two people who spoke to Stephen are members of his church, calling to talk about church business for that day. One man called him at 7.52 a.m., and the other at 9.53 a.m., the Sunday he went missing. A couple of his ward members called, and he answered and said, I'm in Vegas. Unfortunately, he never said why he was in Vegas. What those calls do tell the family is that Stephen appeared to be calm, rational, and forthright on the morning of the 13th. He didn't hide where he was. And he could have just said he was anywhere if he was tr not, trying not to be found or he was trying to commit suicide. Stephen's mother, Deanne, then looks at her son's checking account and debit card statements, to which she has access. There's been no activity since the day he went missing, a disturbing revelation. Next, 
Deanne turns to Stephen's laptop. Stephen's older brother was able to figure out his Yahoo account and read his email. They find endless job applications and rejections, but nothing about appointments in Vegas or anywhere else. No visits to suicide websites and no indication he was planning to leave town. With Christmas approaching, the family is at a loss for where to look next. They miss their son desperately. Stephen goes home for Thanksgiving uh, before he went missing, and we have this uh, evergreen tree that's out in the front, and he wrapped it with white lights. They just never took the lights off, and Dan said, he's going to come home, and he's going to take those lights off. <laughs> and um, So they just left it on. Deanne clings to the promise Stephen made the last time they talked. He'd be home on the 23rd. She told me quite a few times, you know, everything will be fine. He'll just walk in the door and it will be okay. And when that day came and went, it was worse than Christmas. It was worse. That's when he said he'd be home and he wasn't. Christmas also passes with no Stephen and no news. Just as the family feels they've hit rock bottom, they get a call from the private investigators that changes everything. They've finally analyzed the security video shot in the area where Stephen's car was found. It shows the car and someone walking away. It shows his car pulling up out of view of the camera in the cul-de-sac. And he's in his car for six minutes. And almost exactly at noon, you see him walking down the road right past the surveillance cameras. It looked to me like he was holding a, a little, like a manila folder, like it might have been a resume in there or something like that. Then he turns, and the other surveillance camera in the house catches him walking across the street. But is the person in the video really Stephen? And I thought, is that him? Is that him? But now that I've seen a whole lot of other pictures, I'm pretty comfortable that that's my son. It looks like him, the way that he would walk, the clothes that he would wear. I believe that it is him, but it's hard to be 100% sure. He's sitting down the road to it looks like another neighbor's house, and then he goes off camera and out of our lives. Did Stephen go into a nearby house? Did he jump into another car, take a bus to parts unknown? Or did he just keep walking? The koshers realize they need to broaden their search. Two weeks after Stephen disappears, a relative has a surprising suggestion. My wife's cousin said, I have a friend in the, in the local dairy, and maybe we could put Stephen's picture on milk cartons. The dairy readily agrees, but first checks with the Henderson police about the status of the case. They had to finally look at his case and say, you know, what's going on here? And I think that Putting his picture on the Anderson dairy milk cartons really pushed the police to look at his case for the first time and take it seriously. It turns out to be the move that kicks the investigation to a new level. Henderson detective Robert McKay is assigned to the case. We started going door to door in the neighborhood and weren't able to locate anyone in that neighborhood that had seen him. We started to think that maybe Stephen had walked off and, and hiked into the desert. Maybe he had fallen, he'd been hurt. So at that point, we decided to get the helicopter out there to look for him and also some ATVs. 
At the end of December, the Henderson police, together with the Las Vegas Metro Police and many volunteers, stage a massive four-day search. The desert area around that particular neighborhood is quite hilly and rocky and not easy to walk around on. After that large air and ground search, the, the ground searchers did a second day, and they went door to door with flyers that they had created and pictures and posters and, and went to hundreds of homes. A week later, our extended family came down and we did a, another search of that area. It's an enormous effort, and it yields nothing. Then, a stranger steps forward with a startling theory. After his car is found abandoned in a retirement community just outside Las Vegas, 30-year-old Stephen Kosher has been missing for a month. Officials have theories, but no real leads. Stephen could have met someone online or through a friend who came here to meet with them and possibly gone somewhere else, or something even more dire might have happened to him. Entire investigation of all the clues that we've uncovered, talking with people. His anguished family reaches out to the public for help. As you can see, his information is on these milk cartons. The press picks up the story. And Stephen's cousin, a software developer, uses social media to advance the investigation. I created a Facebook page and we would get tips from there. And there was one that was very positive that they saw him in IHOP. And so we called the IHOP and the manager says, yeah, there's this guy that comes in every night and he's obviously homeless and he, he doesn't have any money. So we give him an iced tea and he looks like this guy on the poster. Could Stephen be wandering homeless and confused around Las Vegas? The family believes that is a possibility that Stephen had some sort of mental issue. His mother believes his mental instability could have been caused by depression or a physical injury, such as a blow to the head. Maybe he was going to walk away from the life that he knew, and so there was a, a mental disconnect, and he was, going to, he was just going to do a totally different life. Clinging to this shred of hope of finding Stephen alive, the entire family spends two days at the IHOP. They said that this person had been there on a Friday. We went down with family. Unfortunately, the homeless man never reappears. Meanwhile, the tips keep pouring in. Quite a few of them involved seeing Stephen at a bus stop or on a bus or something like that. While police investigators follow up on every lead, there's one fact that has them stumped. Looking over Stephen's cell phone records, Detective Olmsted realizes that ominously, someone used his phone at 6.04 a.m the day after he disappeared. But who? The phone got to voicemail, checked his voicemail, and there's no way of saying who checked his voicemail. Obviously, that's where this case takes a, a different twist. If he disappeared, he could have ditched the phone and someone picked it up. If he was hurt by someone, they could have taken the phone, ditched it somewhere. If there was a crime, if Stephen came upon something that turned into a bad situation, it's very possible that somebody could have dialed that number in, in an attempt to listen to messages. Those are the questions we just don't have answers for. 
As questions without answers pile up, a startling hypothesis comes out of left field. I was contacted by Stephen Powell, who resides in Washington State and is the father of Joshua Powell, whose wife is Susan Powell, who's missing. More than two weeks after a Utah mother, Susan Powell, disappeared, police are now looking for answers. They had information that they would like us to look at as far as possibly linking the cases. The case of Susan Powell was prominent in the media in December 2009. Connecting the cases seems like a wild idea to Stephen's family. But there are some similarities. Susan Powell came up missing on December 7th, and Stephen came up uh, walking away from his car on the 13th. And Stephen used to live in northern Utah. Susan Cox Powell and Stephen Kosher are both Mormon, but so is 60% of Utah's population. They lived in the same city for mm, a couple months, but do you know how many people live in West Valley City? Do you know how many people in that city are LDS? The theory is that Stephen and Susan ran off together, possibly to a foreign country. Stephen had lived in Brazil for two years of his life, and he spoke Portuguese. Stephen had been a missionary in Brazil, knew that country well. Frankly, we have been happy to know that he'd gone off to Brazil, that we'd know he's alive and okay. It's true Stephen's passport seems to be missing, but there's no evidence he actually left the country. We had Stephen check to see if maybe he'd caught a flight out of town, and they weren't able to find him on any of the passenger lists. There are no calls to Susan on his cell, and no emails on his laptop. The police can find nothing to connect Susan Powell and Stephen. But the only way to rule out a link is for detectives from both cases to sit down together. I met with detectives from West Valley City in northern Utah. They came down and we sat down and went over both cases, reviewed the possibilities and the timelines and things like that. And we were very confident to say that, uh, that it does not look like they're at all related to each other. The possibility that Stephen has fled the country with Susan Powell, or anyone for that matter, is soon dealt another blow. The koshers find Stephen's missing passport on a second search through his personal effects. Frankly, there were days we just did not have the strength to look at his materials. But one day we said, let's look at some of the things we had, and we found it in a, in a, in a binder. No sooner have the koshers set aside one mystery than they are confronted with another. Investigators have questions about some unusual receipts from December 10th, just three days before Stephen went missing. We started looking at some financial records. There were strange for Stephen's lifestyle, things that the family didn't know. The family is puzzled by the food and gas receipts. They show Stephen making an arduous drive of over a thousand miles through the Salt Lake area to northern Nevada, then back to St. George, all within 14 hours on December 10th. We'd found he had been to Wendover, Nevada, and had made a gas purchase within the last few days, which that no one knew. It was Wendover, it was Springville, it was Nephi. And I said, well, what was he doing in Wendover? West Wendover, Nevada, like Las Vegas, is a legal gambling town. Could Stephen have been trying to make money through gambling? Private detectives that we worked with said, well, there was, it goes through Wendover, there's gambling there. I went to Las Vegas, there's gambling there, so it must be running money or drugs or gambling or something. When detectives start thinking about drugs, 
they wonder about Stephen's roommate, whose lifestyle was rather different from Stephen's. They definitely could be considered the odd couple. In fact, the former roommate has a 2007 conviction for possession and use of a controlled substance. Could Stephen have somehow gotten caught up in a drug operation? Could he have been so desperate for money, he was willing to deliver drugs? We realize our goal is here to find him not to hide information or to, to make him what he wasn't. So Rolf has Stephen's car checked for drugs. We had the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Department come with their police dogs, and they sniffed this car for an hour. And the police officer says, I've been here for 20 years in this business, and there are no drugs in this car. car. There never have been drugs in this car. And when St. George police interview the roommate, they conclude that he has not involved Stephen in any illegal activities. In speaking with the roommate, he said that uh, as opposite as they were, they actually interacted very well, and he actually enjoyed uh, having Stephen as a roommate. If Stephen wasn't gambling or running drugs in northern Nevada, what could have induced him to make a thousand-mile round trip to the region on the 10th? Then, on his cousin Casey's website, someone fills in the missing piece of the puzzle. Someone wrote, well, I know why. He had been there in Ruby Valley with the church project, and so he, he, knew, he knew that area. And he, he came and visited with my parents, and he had, they had lunch with my parents. It turned out that Stephen's long drive culminated in Ruby Valley, Nevada, where he visited the parents of an old girlfriend he'd met at church. I think he, he thought she was going to be home there, so he, he could visit her too, but she happened to not be there. His parents are still a little puzzled by the trip. They say the woman in Ruby Valley was not a serious girlfriend. I think he really thought she was a wonderful girl, and really enjoyed going to her, her family farm. I don't think there was any, anything other than that. The koshers are grateful for the answers the search is yielding, but they're not getting any closer to finding Stephen. They're beginning to despair of ever seeing their son again. 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. April 2010. It's been four months since Stephen Kosher appeared to have walked away from his Chevy Caprice in an upscale neighborhood not far from Las Vegas. The search for him has hit a wall, and his bewildered family feels they have nowhere left to turn. It's just been overwhelming. We'd say, do we have the energy to keep going? What do we do now? But then, a stranger extends the koshers an additional hand. This private detective named Craig Redke says, I've read about your son. I just want to help. I just want to help. Redke a former police officer, was moved by what he'd read in the news about Stephen's disappearance. I explained to him that I would like to look into it. I did not want to charge any kind of a fee. I just pro bono, and he agreed. Redke looks over the evidence and outlines his take on the case for the koshers. Let's go back to the video. He's driving his car down the street. He parks. You watch him walk by. He knows where he's going. He has a purpose. There's something that he was going to do. Redke believes Stephen was headed to a meeting, possibly set up through an earlier chance encounter on a street. He could have run into somebody when he was out throwing flyers that, for whatever reason, got him down to Las Vegas. He was introduced somehow to these people, and he was walking towards that meeting. But the appointment may have led Stephen, intentionally or inadvertently, into mortal danger. I think Stephen never made it out of the Henderson neighborhood. Stephen's parents agree. He looked like he had a purpose, and it might have been an opportunity for a job. This is not the walk of someone who's furtive, suicidal, or despondent. To the family and the detectives, it's the walk of someone with a lot to live for who met an unknown fate. Somehow he was lured there for some reason. At some point, something went terribly wrong. And exactly what, it's hard to say. Radke begins following up on the tips that are being phoned in and posted on Stephen's cousin Casey Nagel's website. There's one Radke finds particularly credible. What I had was an anonymous person calling. This person said, you know, you may want to look in this area. The tip suggests Stephen, or his remains, might be found in the desert south of Vegas, near the Henderson Executive Airport. 
I spent hours out in the desert looking myself. And then I contacted um, Rolf. And so he organized the search. We made calls to people we knew. Over 70 people showed up. It was tremendous. It, to this day, gives me goosebumps because the people were fantastic. The detective that is on the case from Henderson, he was out there observing the entire area. The police detectives and the five detectives were working together rather than in opposition to one another. So that turned out very, very well. I really had to, I had to take a step back that day because we were looking for his body. Strewn across the desert, they find the remains of a tent that appears to have been recently occupied. Someone had been there for two or three months, and unfortunately, of course, it's, it's empty. But then, there is an ominous discovery. The kind that might lead to answers, but that no one really wants to find. We found some of the other searchers found bones. They had the CSI people come out and collect that stuff, and they tested it. They were able to determine those were animal bones, and no other evidence was found during that search. The bones were not Stevens, and DNA testing fails to link Steven to the tent. But the family is beginning to come to terms with the idea that next time might be a different story that someone wanted to hurt him or kill him. That makes even less sense to me, but that's, that's where my head is now. He went somewhere and something went terribly wrong. You don't know what happens behind closed doors. He could have opened the door and walked into a, a mess. Could have walked into a crime scene. All the detectives are determined to find out what really happened but are frustrated by the fact that they have almost nothing to go on. We're looking through the neighborhood for any possible suspects. There is a neighbor that lives around the corner, and she also had some suspicions on a particular house that we were looking at. At this point, there's no person of interest. We know exactly as much today as we knew a year ago. We haven't found anything for a year except for places that he's not. Still, the investigation has given the family some comfort. Unraveling the mysteries of the days before Stephen's disappearance has confirmed that he is exactly who they thought he was. We haven't found anything in his life that's contrary to what we believed him to be. If anything, he's more of a hero to me now, just the things that he did in his life and how strong he was. I like to think of my Stephen as a tender soul. He had a really, really tender heart. About a year after he disappeared, a friend of Stephen's gives Deanne and Rolf a recording of a song Stephen wrote and performed. Hearing his voice helps keep him close, even as they hope for his return. And then, leafing through a Bible, the koshers find Stephen's notes for a talk he'd given in church. They're cheered by what Stephen's notes showed about his state of mind just before he disappeared. And he talks about what he learned at home. 
And he says, home was a peaceful, wonderful place. And he really liked the bond that he found with his family, and his brothers and sisters, and his parents. Tragically, just three weeks after this interview, Rolf Kosher passed away at the age of 61. It's another unimaginable loss for a family that has already endured so much grief. But nothing will lessen the Kosher's determination to find out what happened to their beloved brother and son, Stephen. If anybody sees this young man, if anybody knows what happened to him, I just want to know for the family. Let's find him. They need to know. Until Stephen is found, the lights on the kosher's Christmas tree will still burn. They relit it on December 13th, on one year anniversary, the day that he disappeared. And it's going to stay lit as long as anyone has anything to say about it until we find him.